Yes, I didn't quite know what to call this talk, and it's a very much a preliminary exploration of some themes. Light and darkness in Tolkien, in Tolkien's works, has been greatly emphasised and deeply explored. And in, in this, I hardly like to call it a study, this sort of sketch is a preliminary look at the intermediate state, diminution of light, both positive and negative. It starts with Tolkien's time on the OED, where, among other words, he edited the entry for WAN, W-A-N. Tolkien's time on the OED influenced him deeply. His mind continued to work on the words that he edited. He commented long after he left, or sometime after he left the OED, on the relationship of wild and world. He, wor he, he wrestled for many years with the etymology of walrus, which he never felt he'd pinned down. And in a more nebulous way, we can perhaps trace the appearance of words like waistcoat and wain, W-A-I-N, and even perhaps wander in his writings. He pinned a, a vivid draft of the definition of wake, meaning the rural festivity, which I'd love to show you, but there isn't time. Little of this um, draft survived into the published entry, but it testifies to his interest in the rural life which surfaces in his descriptions of the Shire. I'd like to concentrate on this single word which he worked on which he worked, and for which we have a fairly complete set of slips, dictionary slips, small pieces of paper, about six by four, showing the process of composition. Uh, it's the adjective one, as I've said, and it also shows the alterations made by later editors. Um, by, sorry, by a later editor, probably Henry Bradley, before publication. And then I'm going to go on and talk about two other adjectives. Before we look at the slips, um, this is just a, it's difficult to, to convey a dictionary entry, but um, this is a skeleton outline of some of the meanings of the word one. Um, in the entry, in the Oxford English Dictionary, this is not, of course, the actual text. I can't show you that. It would be too complicated. Um, uh, as written, mainly by Tolkien. Since one is, just to summarise, gloomy or dark and goes back to Old English, and one B is applied to the sea or waters. And I'll go into all these in more detail in a minute. Since two means dismal and various other things. Three means leaden-hued, and these are all Old English senses. Four is the more familiar sense, pallid or sickly, applied to faces, which dates from Middle English. Um, and then skipping a couple of minor senses, 4D is faint or dull of heavenly bodies or white objects, um, which only arose in the 17th century. And then there's finally a very minor sense, a pale of colour. Now, um, as you'll have already spotted, that there is a paradoxical development in the word uh, one. In Old English, it meant basically dark or gloomy. Uh, and it was only from Middle English onward that the sense pallid, as in pale and wan, as, as we often say, um, and you've got an almost apparent reversal of meaning. 
But clearly, there is a common factor. The common factor is the diminution of light quality. Um, and in the drafts that he wrote, um, Tolkien carefully considered the semantic development, and in fact, in a way, um, perhaps never quite solved the, the question. This is sense one. The published wording of the main definition is Tolkien's wording, lacking light or luster, dark-hued, dusky, gloomy, dark. The familiar handwriting there, those of you who've seen it. He also writes an additional sen sentence of commentary, applied very frequently but not exclusively to things regarded as ominous, unfriendly or dangerous. And please note those words, particularly ominous. This, is, this, this sentence was not regarded as necessary by the final editor, and probably rightly, actually, when you look at the published quotations which go with it, which I haven't got the space to show you. But what's important is that it gives us insight into Tolkien's imaginative response to the word. I guess that his response is based particularly on the old English uses, which would have been readily available to him in the Bosworth Toller uh, old English dictionary, which he would have used. But, but anyway, he would have known many of the texts uh, in his own reading. W-A-N-N, -N, one in old English, describes particularly night, clouds, ravens, and the devil. And it's frequently used in what you might call gloomy contexts. And indeed, the first quotation at this sense in the Oxford English Dictionary entry is a well-known line from Beowulf describing the coming of Grendel, Kom on one nicht, shridan shadowgenga. The, um, the sort of dark walker came gliding in the, in the dark night. Um, sense 1b is a curious sense. Um, his, his, the text that he wrote, that Tolkien wrote, was retained partly as a main definition and partly as a kind of further note in smaller type, especially in conventional application in poetry to the sea, waves, etc., or other waters, and then in small type. The original significance was perhaps that of dark-hued. But the sense often approaches, or is blended with, the next, meaning the next sense in the, in the entry. In more recent poetry, he goes on, <clears throat> the word is probably, except by conscious archaism, to be understood rather as grey or pale, but the gloomy connotation remains. Again, note this interest in the kind of um, affective side of things. Now, there's, there's two questions really arising from this one curious 1B sense. First of all, Tolkien has left this sense not marked obsolete, meaning, you know, it's not used anymore, implying that it was, was still current. One Waters does seem to have become something of a literary cliché, and in the OED examples, which I'm not showing you, there's a very strong Scottish tradition, actually, of use from, um, from the 15th century down through writers like Gavin Douglas right down to the 18th century. But did this use, in fact, survive to the time of the composition of the OED entry? The last examples given in the entry are both from 1865, one of them actually from Kingsley's Heroward the Wake, which is a work that has been shown to have influenced Tolkien quite a bit. Now, we don't have the official OED's answer because this entry has not yet been revised. The published entry is still 
the first edition as written by Tolkien. Um, but unofficial research shows that, in fact, use with reference to water, the sea, and so on, did in fact survive in poetical use into the 20th century. So, for example, um, there are those two quotations, one from Macefield um, and from uh, someone called John Todhunter, um, and waters uh, being described as one. But the second, so, so yes, it isn't obsolete, it is still, or it was until recently, still in use. Secondly, is this really all one sense, one meaning, or has the meaning dark actually been lost under the influence of the more recent uses? Just the fact that there is co continued application to water doesn't guarantee continuation of the same meaning. And Tolkien virtually admits this in his note, but he's very keen to show the co continuation of the negative association of water, particularly of the sea. But looking at for these two quotations that I've pulled out, I mean, what is Andrew Lang saying in 1872? He's, he's actually very attached to the water of the Tweed. He's nostalgic, but he's not gloomy. It's not a gloomy river. It's one that he has nostalgic associations. Um, and the, the novel, um, again, I don't think is, is really about gloom. It's about um, pale, the pallor of the water in the moonlight. Anyway, I shall come back to this, uh, this rather odd sense, 1B. Since, two, unfortunately, we don't ha seem to have a copy of Tolkien's draft, but I guess that is likely to be his wording, as it's stylistically similar to his other draft in the use of numerous near synonyms, um, where he writes, um, transferred or figurative, sad, dismal, also awful, fearful, deadly, cruel, wicked, etc., um, uh, it's, it's curious because it's really quite a minor sense. There are only three illustrative quotations in the OED. They're all um, from, um, from quite early sources, sort of late Middle English sources and early modern English sources, applied to other uh, things such as fate and tears. Um, and for this number of examples, the synonyms offered seem rather numerous and note that they are entirely words of subjective response um, uh, uh, rather than of objective appearance and almost all negative. Moving on to sense three. Tolkien has written a definition which is retained in the published entry of an unhealthy, unwholesome colour, livid, leaden-hued, applied especially to wounds, to the human face discoloured by disease and to corpses, and it's obsolete. And he, he composed an additional comment. You can see it's got lines through it. This sense passes into and is often indistinguishable from four, um, meaning probably meaning the current sense four. It's not absolutely clear how the numbering works. Some of the earlier instances there placed, especially with reference to the effects of emotion, etc., possibly refer to a, rather to a livid or sallow hue than to a, a white pallor. So he's sort of trying to almost claw back some examples given later in the entry and move them or suggest they might really belong here. Um, he's trying to identify a point of transition from dark to pale, but again, this comment isn't retained. Uh, and in fact, <coughs> commenting in one place on a use in a different sense isn't really correct OED practice. I mean, you have to decide really which sense you're talking about and talk about it at that number and not try and talk about it somewhere else. The comment doesn't survive. It doesn't get moved to sense four. 
When we come to sense 4, which is the one that's a bit more familiar, most of Tolkien's definition is kept. Pallid, faded, sickly. Sorry, just checking. Unusually or unhealthily pale. Most frequently applied to the human face or to things with conscious metaphor from this application. And then again, he's written something um, that isn't used. It's not actually shown as deleted here, but uh, he writes, but also less often to anything paler in colour or less brilliant than normally. Again, I think an attempt to look at the transition between meanings. And he also supplies, uh, he supplies the familiar lemma, a wan smile with a definition, but this gets moved to a different sense. Uh, the examples given here include the expected wan face, wan cheeks, person who has a wan face, and also wan colourless hangings and wan dawn and figurative applications to envy, despair and regret. And then skipping over two minor um, senses, which are uh, a pale and one, in fact. For D, which actually he had as E originally, the first part of his definition is kept, applied to the brackets light of heavenly bodies, etc. Faint, sickly, partially obscured. And then an additional part is added by the final editor, not written by Tolkien, also of white objects, etc., dull, lustreless. And this replaces, and paraphrases with less analysis, a deleted follow-on comment drafted by Tolkien, which reads, This usage is transitional. Applications to the sun, sunlight, etc., belong Sorry, application to the sun, sunlight, etc. belongs here, but applications to the moon, stars, etc. frequently to five. And by five, I think he probably means what is now sense four. As there is often no diminution of radiance implied, but at most an implied comparison with the brighter sun. The distinction is often difficult to make accurately. So Tolkien is at pains to point out that the pallor of the sun is a diminution of its normal light, and therefore strictly a separate sense, whereas the, the, the pallor of the moon or stars is merely a normal brightness that is lesser than that of the sun. And in fact, um, this distinction is made in the OED entry for Pale. The examples which begin in the 17th century relate, of course, to the sun, moon, stars, sky, glimmerings of sunshine and air. There is a real question here, and I think Tolkien has, has pointed to it, about where exactly to place examples that show neither the pallor of the, of the human skin nor the effect of diminished natural light, because there are a lot of applications that don't quite fall into these. And as we shall see presently, these are well to the fore among Tolkien's uses of the word. Sorry. One last thing in this entry, um, it deals with the... Um, the etymology, and um, this is the whole OED etymology, but I'm really only interested in the, uh, the red part represents the bit on the slip I'm about to show you, or the equivalent passage, um, the slip by Tolkien, and um, I'm really only interested in the second paragraph, uh, where it says, in addition to this association, the application to heavenly bodies, when obscured or when compared to others more bright, possibly aided the general application to pale things. So again, in the etymology, we're still wrestling with trying to decide exactly how there was a sense shift. Tolkien's draft is quite a palimpsest. Uh, 
In fact, the final draft, if you can work it out, is quite similar to what got published, um, but the final sentence of it was discarded. So it, he wrote much the same, but he added on... Um, uh, what, well, what he said was, in addition to this association, the application to heavenly bodies, when obscured or when compared to others more bright, e.g. the moon as compared with the sun, probably aided the general application to pale things so that instead of meaning darker than usual, the word now means paler. <laughs> Nonetheless, the connotation of the word still largely implies that a thing is paler than normal. And the, the earlier drafts of this central sentence, somewhere in, in the middle of all that, um, are fairly garbled, but he's saying something like, when less brilliant than usual, probably the aided of general aided the change of general sense, the sun was called one when less light than usual, or the moon as being less brilliant than the sun, interestingly, sun has a capital S there, etc. And so this word became applied to things naturally pale or whitish. Well, you get the general drift that he's sort of wrestling with this whole relationship between the, the, the brightness or the diminution of the brightness of the, of the different heavenly bodies. Now, that sort of ends the look at the Tolkien slips. And I want to move on now to um, the next thing that he did in lexicography, because it's important to remember that on leaving the Oxford English Dictionary for his lectureship in Leeds, Tolkien did not immediately, immediately abandon lexicography. He spent an unknown amount of time, but surely it can't have been less than a year altogether, um, compiling the glossary to Kenneth Sysom's early Middle English verse and prose, which was published in 1922 as a Middle English vocabulary. The adjective one occurs four times in the text selected by Sison. One of these occurrences also appears as an example in the OED entry. Um, this is from piece seven, The Destruction of Troy, line 140 in the uh, Sison volume. With blasters full big of the brame winders, while took the wagis upon one hillus. In the, in the OED entry, Tolkien's entry, this quotation comes in that odd sense 1b, which is supposed to be applied to the sea or other waters. Um, but actually, this is not about the sea. This is about hills. Um, but that's the sense which inherits the gloss uh, from sense 1, dark-hued, dusky, gloomy, dark. Here in the glossary, Tolkien glosses this occurrence simply gloomy. It's as if he's taking the opportunity to rethink the meaning that this quotation uh, exemplifies. There are some other um, uses of one in that volume, but they're not really um, very relevant to what we want to talk about. So moving on to one in Tolkien's own writings. First of all, what Tolkien did not do he did not attempt to use one in its original Old English sense, lacking light, dark hue. You can imagine the attractiveness of the connotations that he noted in his deleted draft applied to things regarded as ominous, unfriendly, or dangerous. Nonetheless, he abstained, and this can be tested in the 1926 translation of Beowulf. Uh, there are five occurrences of parts of the, of the word one, and all as translated by modern English equivalents, as you can see. In other words, Tolkien applied the doctrine which he preached in the prefatory remarks on prose translation of Beowulf of using literary and traditional language and eschewing antiquarian sentiment and philological knowingness, as Professor 
Orchard has recently reminded us in his article in Oxford English. But in contrast, um, Tolkien does use one in line 1638 of his version to translate line 1950 of a fail and as over the one waters. He is here presumably making use of his sense 1b in OED, the sense exemplified in the destruction of Troy, uh, of which he wrote, in more recent poetry, the word is probably, except by conscious archaism, to be understood rather as grey, pale, but the gloomy connotation remains. Uh, it's presumed, to be presumed that this is not with conscious archaism, but in the sense grey or pale. But is he perhaps taking a bit of a liberty with the word fealu, which normally means pale yellow, um, if one is to be understood as implying, implying gloomy or even pallid, as with sickness or deprivation of light, is this a true translation of the Old English word? Or is he just taking advantage of the fact that one waters alliterates? Anyway, the fact is that Tolkien in his early works was quite partial to the use of one applied to waters, using at least five examples, although it is not, but it is not so used in um, The Lord of the Rings. Moving on to sense one, yeah, well, talk, sorry, continuing with sense one B. Uh, these are two examples. Um, what we must notice is Tolkien's interest in the atmospheric and emotive content of the word. Its literal sense, diminution of light quality, is important to Tolkien for its connotations of the ominous, the hostile, the dangerous, and the gloomy. So, for example, in the Lay of Lathian, we have the shade of Gorlim, the traitor, coming to confess his betrayal to Beren which quivers over the wan waters. And in the Lay of Gudrun, um, Tolkien makes Gudrun kill herself in the wan waters, and that's not actually in the Icelandic tradition. Um, so moving to sense four, um, Tolkien uses the word a fair number of times in sense four, but in some cases it's difficult to decide um, whether it's just unhealthily pale or to do with the light of heavenly bodies. Pale face examples um, are a bit rare. The main cases relate to Turin's two tragic lovers. We've just been reminded about this, of this story, of course. Finduilas and Niniel, they're both pale several times. A notably positive use of the word occurs in his translation of Pearl, the Middle English poem Pearl, um, where the original says that her... Her looks were more, well, the word is literally bleached than whale's bone, than the, the bone of a whale, and that's rent or whalebone, I should say, uh, and her hue as rural ivory one. Well, I'd love to stop and talk about rule. It's a very interesting word, but I haven't got time. But um, he's, uh, it's interesting that he's introduced the word one for this purpose. Um, in sense 4D, there are, about six examples of one applied to the light of heavenly bodies. One of these actually occurs in the Lord of the Rings, and it's interesting, it comes just before the company's attempt on the Red Horn Gate. It's a moment when things are ominous. There was a black look in the sky, and the sun was one. Um, there are a number of other applications, the placing of which among OED senses is not very certain. It, for the present purposes, this doesn't matter. What is interesting is the use to which Tolkien put the word in most of these. One literally indicates diminution of normal brightness, 
In a few cases, it has to do with a kind of indistinctness, the inability to make things out clear, clearly, as in the twilight scene with flitting moths. That's the, the one in, in the Lay of Lathian. Um, in about ten other cases, it has to do with a sinister or baleful lack of normal colour in an object of the environment. And the nearest sinister, uh, synonym would be pale, but it's chosen, I think, for an emotive effect. And here belongs one of the other occurrences uh, in The Lord of the Rings. All that host was clad in sable, dark as the night, against the wan walls and the luminous pavement of the road. Frodo could see them. It's a most important moment of the highest tension and dread. Um, the word wan seems to be conveying the gloomy ghastliness of Minas Morgul. And given the modern understanding of the word, it seems almost to bestow a kind of personality on the place. So we've got more than 30 examples of the word. Um, it's a very rare word in modern English. Uh, frequency is about one occurrence per million. So the 30-odd examples in Tolkien's words, works greatly exceeds this. Um, it's, it's only common use in, in, mod, in modern English is with, with reference to the complexion, which is the sense in which he uses it probably least. But although he used one, um, more than one might have expected in his writings up to around 1937, it doesn't really seem to occur in The Hobbit and occurs only four times in The Lord of the Rings. And here his preferred adjectives for diminished brightness were pale and dim. Um, I just want to look at the, a bit more these semantic areas brought to our attention. Um, the, these four areas in one, pallor of the skin, diminution of natural light, indistinctness and diminution of colour. They're all there in one, they're all there in pale and two of them are in, there in dim. So, moving on, um, now, pale is an entry which has now been um, revised for the um, online edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, but it's not enormously different from the version that would have been already in place for Tolkien to refer to when he was writing one. Um, and the key senses are one, the pallid, the, the skin, face, complexion sense. One um, B is the faint shade of colour. <coughs> And, and the words in brackets are the words occurring in the illustrative quotations in the OED. So horse, stream, flower, fruit, writing. Um, that sun actually shouldn't have been highlighted because it's not a typical use of sun. It's a pictorial sun. Um, two is lacking in brightness. Day, daylight, light, star, moon. And three is a figurative use. And um, when we um, move on to look at Tolkien's vocabulary to the early, to early Middle English verse and prose, which we looked at for, for one. All the examples of pale in that collection by Sisom, they all come from extract seven, and this is the destruction of Troy, the same one with the one hills. And um, so... Uh, Yes, um, pale winter, pale winds, and pale sea. And Tolkien's gloss in, here, in the glossary is wan, chill, and then brackets connoting fatal, ill-omened. Might almost have been ominous. Um, now, 
Tolkien's connotation, fatal or ill-omened, is not mentioned in the OED entry for Pale, which he must have been able to refer to, even though one of OED's examples is, in fact, um, from this same work. It's quoted a lot, this, this destruction of Troy. It's not very well known now, but it's very much quoted in the OED. Um, what appears to happen here is that Tolkien treats these uses of pale as a sort of as almost an equivalent to earlier uses of one, so that it inherits the gloomy connotations of one. Um, he's sort of carrying over the attribution of the symbolism. Um, some frequency information again. Um, in According to the Oxford English Corpus, pale occurs roughly in the region of 10.9 occurrences per million. According to Google Ngrams, which is a, um, a Google, an application of Google Books, the literature in Google, um, which gives you numbers and rates, it's more like 16.6 per million. And back in 1900, interestingly, it was nearer, nearer 40 per million. I can't really account for that, but it gives you some idea. Now, in the Book of Lost Tales, um, there are 38 instances in about 142,000 words, which is a great many more numbers than um, uh, a, a great many a higher, a great, sorry, a much higher rate than, than in, in normal usage. Most of um, <coughs> the examples are used in contexts which suggest that an emotive com component is as important as the literal sense. So you have pale waters three times, pale swords or blades, and even pale voices. And the instances are spread relatively evenly through the book, except in that chapter that deals with the creation of the sun and moon, in which there are no fewer than 12 occurrences of pale. So the application to light and heavenly bodies is very prominent. And it's also quite common in some of the other earlier works, the Lay of Lathian, 24 times, and the early versions of The Hobbit, about 21 times. When we come on to The Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings is about a half a million words long. Pale occurs 160 times, so the rate is now about 320 per million, which is about eight times as frequently as you would expect. And it seems reasonable to assume that there's some significance in this. Um, it's notable that pale is concentrated in certain chapters. There is low frequency in some and absence from several. So um, there are no occurrences at all in a long-expected party of conspiracy, unma unmasked strider, the voice of Saruman, the master of Rohan, the black gate opens, homeward bound. There are six to ten occurrences in the other those chapters that I've listed there. Um, and, but analysis by chapters slightly disguises the fact that examples of pale are several times very closely clustered within an episode and may appear repeatedly in, on the same or successive pages. This might have been due to just the very human tendency to repeat a word one has used in a nearby context, but this seems unlikely to me. Tolkien rewrote and revised. He surely would have noticed stylistic infelicities if he thought they were that. He often uses pale to describe the sky or weather conditions, and he could have done this in almost any chapter, but in fact he doesn't. It seems a reasonable hypothesis that he's deploying the word deliberately, and it's worth just trying to investigate 
how he did it, and I can't claim to have fully investigated by any means. So just setting aside ten examples, um, just looking at the senses of pale he used, setting aside ten examples in the minor senses, 1C and 3, um, there are 27 uses in sense 1, including 15 of face, 4 applied to Frodo. And in sense 1B, um, uh, there are 59 uses, including 21 applied to the sky. In sense 2, there are 53, including 25 applied to light. And then there are some dubious ones, which I'll come back to, relating to eyes. And it's especially interesting to see how frequently the word collocates with sky and light and with other light-suggesting words such as gleam. But a sense analysis doesn't fully show how the word is deployed to convey atmosphere and emotion. In Book 1, there are very few occurrences of the word in, in the chapters dealing with Hobbit activities um, and the House of Tom Bombadil and occurrences at Bree. The largest number occur in eight uh, Fog on the Barrow Downs, 11, A Knife in the Dark, and 12, A Flight to the Ford. Um, curiously, uh, these are all ones in which Frodo is in the greatest danger, and curiously, the Barrow episode contains the highest number, 10, and it happens to be the time which Gandalf judges to have been, quote, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. The first and last uses of the word in the chapter describe gold. In the build-up to the crisis where Frodo finds himself in the barrow, uh, it is the forest, the river with Ewindle, the shadow and the sun which are pale. When the crisis breaks, it's the light of the barrow white's eyes, twice the light in the barrow and once the faces of the hobbits which are described as pale. And just in the middle, just before the crisis, we have an ominous stone. Um, it may be accidental patterning, does seem very effective. Sorry, let's go back. In chapters, chapter four of book two, Frodo becomes aware of pale points of light in the gloom of Moria, followed by a glimpse of pale eyes on the borders of Lothlorien in chapter six, and pale lamp-like eyes on the Great River in chapter nine. Collocation of pale with eyes would normally be expected to represent sense 1b, that is the sort of diminution of, you know, bleaching of colour. But, one, but this, this is one of the central uses of pale and has to be taken as sense 2, that is to do with light, because Gollum's eyes shine with their own light and it is a baleful light. This motif recurs repeatedly through chapters 1 to 8 of Book 4, recording Frodo and Sam's journey with Gollum. It's a very early association as well. If you go back to the pre-publication drafts of The Hobbit, the ones published by, uh, as Mr Baggins and uh, whatever it's called, Homeward Bound, Pale is used to describe Gollum's eyes four times on a single page, including pale lamp-like eyes. And I haven't got time to detail other examples of the sort of baleful deployment of the word, but I can quickly point out that all but one of the 15 occurrences of the word ominous in The Lord of the Rings occur in close proximity to clusters of the word pale. And incidentally, the frequency of ominous is much higher than in other uses. Uh, coming to 
Lothlorien, chapter 6 to 7, by contrast, everything described as pale is wholesome. The evening light lay pale upon the dim lands of distant plain and wood, a pale roof of quivering leaves, the sky, the day coming pale from the east, the pale blue sky, the pale eddying water of Celebrant, the pale gold of the Malorn trees, flowers white and palest green, the pale Nifredil, the pale gleam of Anduin, the pale evening sky, culminating in the appearance of Galadriel by night, tall and pale. And to sort of move on to my next adjective, in the same episode, numerous instances of the word dim are intertwined. The dim lands, the dim light of the stars, the dim pools, Frodo dimly seeing the grey forms of the elves, the moon gleaming dimly, and at the end, the dim shadow of the elven lady. But right in the middle of his vision, in Galadriel's mirror, Sam sees Frodo with a pale face under a cliff and himself going along a dim passage. Now, quick outline of meanings of dim, not really complicated. This is the unrevised entry again that Tolkien would have seen. Um, one is faintly luminous, obscure, sometimes applied to water. One B is the figurative use. Two is not clear to the sight. Three is faint as regards, regards colour, applied to gold, for example. And four is of sound, which is an interesting one. Um, so... Um, one is of a light or illuminated object, faintly luminous, not clear, somewhat dark, obscure, shadowy, gloomy. The opposite of bright or clear. 1B is really figurative. 2 is, is the obvious one, where you can't make something out, misty, hazy. 3 is um, anything coloured that isn't very bright. And 4 is related to sound. Um... In the early Middle English verse and prose, there are only two examples of dim. And one is an adjective and one is an adverb. The adjectival use is from piece two, Sir Orphea, a favourite poem, Tolkien's. A very celebrated line, 285. The king of fiery with his root, com to hunt him a la boot, with dim, dim cree and blowing, and hound is also with him berking. Tolkien's translated, Tolkien translated that, that line as with blowing far and crying dim, his version of Sir Orphio. We'll come back to this shortly, but one thing of some interest is that the first edition of the OED failed to include this quotation. In the Middle English Dictionary, the equivalent sense, this is the earliest example. And the adverbial use is from John Gower's Confessio ad Mantis, line 31, piece 12b, which is not particularly relevant, but I quite like the fact that it, it, um, he, this is about Bardus, a peasant, hearing the voice of Adrian, who's a sort of rich man who's fallen into a pit. Um, he heard a voice which creed dim. Um, but, and the interesting is that when Bardus pulls what he thinks is Adrian out of the pit, it's a monkey that comes up uh, instead of Adrian. And it says, he waned Al had been a jap, a jape, of fiery, fairy, and saw him dread. Tolkien glosses both of these, of these as faint and faintly. Um, again, frequency, uh, it's about 4.25 or maybe greater back in 1900. Uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, there are 18 instances, it's a lot higher. Um, uh, you know, it works out as a rate of 126 per million, which is a lot more. Now, the associations of 
in, in Book of Lost Tales are three. The twilight elder days with the literally dim world before the rising of the sun. So, for example, the Hisildi, the twilight, peop twilight people, might follow very faint <coughs> paths in those dim days. Secondly, with the mysterious magic zone that surrounds Valinor and enchants anyone who tries to approach. So, uh, for example, in, in Book 9, Chapter 9, sorry, webs lying even upon the bosom of the shadowy seas until the Bay of Fairy grew dim. And thirdly, with the fading of the elves so that they become both indistinct to sight and insubstantial to memory. So, in the epilogue, who are these fairies? And some few shall answer, memories faded dim, a wraith of vanishing loveliness in the trees, a rustle of the grass glint of dew. And these are the three key elements of fairy to which Tolkien returned over and over and over. In the Lay of Lathian, a dim occurs eight times, and we need to pay attention to this because the story of Tinuviel is centred on that realm which came to be called Doriath, the preeminent region of fairy magic ruled by Thingol, the archetypal fairy king, and his consort Melian the Maya. Melian's enchantment diverted, as you know, Thingol from seeking Valinor, so he became the ruler of the elves of the twilight, and she herself is associated with twilight and nightingales. It's the preeminent locus of dimness in Tolkien's fairy sense. Hence, it's very striking to encounter in the narrative of Kelligorm's wolf hunt the deliberate echo of Sir Orfeo, not once but twice. At line 2298-9, there are dim cries and horns blowing and barking hounds through the trees going. And at line 2348-9, almost the same wording, not quite. Now, if we go on to the drafts of The Hobbit, as presented in John D. Ratcliffe's two-volume History of the Hobbit, in Mr. Baggins, there are six occurrences of dim, all but one of them relate to Mirkwood. Now, Ratliff has argued that originally Tolkien probably conceived the Elven King as, in some vague way, actually Thingol himself and his realm as Doriath. And all this is unpicked later in The Lord of the Rings, so it can't be. But at the time, this seems to be how it works. And this makes very good sense when we encounter the Invisible Hunt, depicted in the late episode The Enchanted Stream page 350. They became aware of the dim blowing of horns in the wood and the sound as of dogs baying far off. It seemed they could hear the noise of a great hunt going by to the north of the park. Again, the echo of, of Sir Orfeo. Um, now, by the time of the Lord of the Rings, Thingol's name is quite prosaically explained as Grey Cloak, Cindy plus Collo in Quenya. The element thin in his name has no necessary further associations and indeed looks much like a synonym of myth in, in Gandalf Greyhame's sobriquet Mithrandir, Grey Pilgrim. But if you go back to the etymologies, which of course uh, date from just before the Lord of the Rings era, that wonderful sort of thesaurus or, or, or treasury of, of, of linguistic material, um, there is um, an entry for thin, the root thin, and it makes it clear that this route was originally intended to encapsulate that quality of dimness associated with the fairy realm. Although actually the word dim does not appear, pallid, pale and wan are there. Um, and you have, for example, um, Sindo is the name of Elway's brother, that's Thingol himself. Um, uh, also with, with title, King of Twilight, you have 
thinned or thin grey or pale, and words for evening and words for fade. And it's also associated with another root, tin, which is um, regarded as a variant or anyway affected by thin, um, which has associations with this same uh, sort of atmosphere, starlit dusk, dusk twilight, king of twilight being Thingol's name and Tinuviel, daughter of twilight. But in The Lord of the Rings, um, dim occurs about a hundred times, which is a very high frequency. Um, and as with pale, there are concentrations of dim in some chapters and a complete or almost complete absence of it in others. The word is not especially noticeable in the first book. Its greatest frequency is actually in book five, chapter four, the siege of Gondor, and the first three chapters of book six. And this is really predictable and straightforward, given that all the action takes place under the gloomy pall of smoke sent out from Mount Doom. But of course, these vapours do not bring merely shadow, but emotional gloom. People feel despair. The fairy associations of dim that we've just noted um, in the earlier writings really are limited to that, those ones I mentioned in the Sojourn of Lothlorien, the heart of Elvendom on Earth. There are a couple of throwbacks to the Serolfio passage, one in Book 5, Chapter 1, when Denethor tells how he heard Boromir's horn blowing dim upon the northern marches, and the other in Book 5, <coughs> Chapter 9, when Legolas describes the shadow host Faint cries I heard and dim horns blowing. And incidentally, the Oxford English Corpus shows that dim is now almost never used of sound except with the word echo. So, sort of summing up, what dim symbolises in Tolkien's earlier work is that quality of half-light, three ways associated with fairy, with the unreachable oversea realm, with the hidden realm in Middle-earth and with the fading under the dominance of humans. When we reach the Law of the Rings, this aspect of the elves is scarcely any longer conveyed by language relating to light quality. Perhaps a hint of it remains in Galadriel's l lament when she says, But this is translated as out of a grey, not dim, country. <laughs> Darkness lies on the foaming waves between us. Even though pale is used in describing Lorien, it appears to suggest a delicate light quality, not a dim one. If anything, a clearer light is associated with Lorien and with Elvenholm. And two factors, I would suggest, are in play. One is the much greater realism of Lord of the Rings as compared with the earlier legendarium and the, and, and the greater distance um, of the legendarium in time from our world. In Lord of the Rings, the fairy quality is suggested by removal from the narrative's world in time and space. Lorien is portrayed as being in a kind of time warp, unregainable in their later lives by either Frodo or Aragorn, and Elvenholm as being removed from the circles of the world altogether. As Galadriel parts from the travellers, already she seemed to Frodo as by men of later days elves still at times are seen, present and yet remote, a living vision of that which has already been left far behind by the flowing streams of time. Thank you.